if you would, and open up to the book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 28. I was thinking as I was there singing and, and listening to you guys sing, you know, there's the, the passage in the New Testament where Paul says that when we gather to worship, that we speak to one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That it's not just me singing, but that it, it's good for my heart to hear you singing. Um, it, it's such an encouragement sitting down front to get to hear the church lift their voices and sing together. So thank you for singing. But uh, let's bow to, bow to the Lord for a word of prayer. Then we'll turn our attention to this psalm. Lord, you are our strength when we are weak. And Lord, there are so many times in life when we feel that weakness. And so Lord, thank you for the strength that you give us through your son. And thank you for the mercy that you show us. Uh, Lord, thank you that we can cry out to you. And uh, we do cry out to you this morning, Lord, and say that we need you. Lord, not, not occasionally, not annually, but Lord, we need you every day and we need you every hour and we need you every second. So Father, we pray that you would draw near this morning and Lord, that you would give strength in our weakness, that you would give direction, that you would help those, Lord, who are struggling spiritually, Lord, that you would help those who are alienated from you in sin. God, we just pray that you would show mercy in this service and that you would speak through the power of your word. And we ask all this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Again, church, we're going to be in Psalm 28 together, and I know I've said this so many times over the last several months that you haven't memorized, but I'll say it again. The great thing about the Psalms is that they not only speak to us, the Psalms speak for us. That's such a great way to describe Psalms, because on the one hand, God speaks to us in the Psalms. Like all of Scripture, the Psalms were written under the inspiration of God, which means the men who wrote the Psalms wrote exactly what God wanted us to have. So our great God speaks to us in the Psalms. That's fantastic. But then the Psalms also show us how to speak back to God. Because there are times in life, lots of times in life, where it's hard to put our struggles or our emotions into words. And the Psalms were given to show us how to put our position in words as we go to God in prayer. And that's why I've tried to make the point over the last few weeks that's why so many Christians over the centuries have been deeply helped through the Psalms. I mentioned last week the role that the Psalms played in the life of uh, Charles Spurgeon. But the Psalms also played a pivotal role in the life of the great reformer Martin Luther. Uh, in fact, the Psalms, when Luther became a professor of Bible at the University of Wittenberg in the early 1500s, the first book that Luther got to teach through there was the book of Psalms. And Luther's life was so impacted by studying Psalms that he made a discipline in his life. Listen to this now. He established a discipline in his life where he would read the Psalms at seven designated periods every day. So every day of his life, at seven specific times, he would open his Bible and he would read a Psalm or multiple Psalms. So that he would read through the entire book of Psalms, all 150 chapters, he would read through every two weeks. And he kept that discipline up for most of his life. So by the end of Luther's life, he read the Psalms through hundreds and hundreds of times. And he did that because he was so helped by the Psalms. Listen to what Luther wrote about this book. Luther wrote, The Psalms is the book of all saints. And everyone, in whatever situation he may be, finds in that situation psalms and words that fit his case, that suit him as if they were put there just for his sake. 
so that when he could not put it better himself or find or wish for anything better. You see what he's saying? He's saying when it comes to praying, you, you can't put it any better than the Psalms do. You, you and I couldn't possibly fashion a prayer that reads any better than these inspired prayers that were given to us by God. And the psalm we're going to look at this morning is, is another psalm that was written about how we turn to God during suffering. Now listen for a second. You realize suffering comes into our lives for lots of different reasons. So a lot of the suffering we go through in life is just part and parcel to being in a, a world that's under the curse of sin. When God first created Adam and Eve, they were created in a, a suffering-free world. There was no pain. There was no disease. There was no disappointment. Everything functioned perfectly. But when our first parents sinned, everything in this universe was thrown off kilter. And so with sin came suffering and hardship and disease. We have bodies that wear out. We have cells that mutate and become cancerous. So a lot of the suffering we go through in life is just part of living in a fallen, sin-cursed world. And there are other times in life where our suffering comes as a direct result of our own sin. So think of a, a man who is embezzling money from his employer and gets caught and punished and put in prison for it. Or think of a woman who has an affair in her marriage and wrecks relationships in her family. Well, some of our, some of our struggles come for that reason, because of our own individual sin. And then what David's going to address here in Psalm 28 is that some of our suffering comes from other people sinning against us. And because we're in a fallen world, there are evil people in this world. And there are times where, where evil people in this world do terrible things. And it could be that you have been sinned against in some terrible way in your life. Maybe, maybe your reputation has been ruined because of lies and slander. Maybe you were abused at some point in your life. Or maybe you've been persecuted because of your faith in your life. How do we respond as God's people? How do we pray when we're going through suffering like that? Well, that's what David's going to address here. Before I read it, let me say one other thing. You know, God has graciously provided us with a couple of means of relief in our suffering. And what I mean by that is one of the means that God has provided is if you are being sinned against in some significant criminal way, that's why God has given us civil government. So God established government, Romans 13 says, to bear the sword. So if, if you're being abused, if we have a lady who's being abused by her husband, if there's a child who's abused by an adult, God has given us government for that. Authorities should be notified. Police should be called. The government, Romans 13 says, bears the sword to punish those who do evil. Because that's one means of relief that God's given us. And then another means of relief that God has given us is church discipline. So if it's another believer, if it's someone in the church who is sinning against you in some significant way, in addition to civil authorities, if it's somebody who claims to be a Christian, maybe they're slandering you and ruining your reputation, well, God's given you a church family to help with that. He's given us an outline of that person's to be confronted. And if they don't stop, they're to be confronted by multiple people. And if they don't stop, the church is to get involved to the point that that person is eventually put out of the church family. So my point is, God has given us an avenue in the state that God designated, and God's given us an avenue in the church that are both designed to give us relief when we're suffering. But 
There are lots of cases of suffering that don't fit into any one of those areas. So what do we do when we're suffering? Well, that's what Psalm 28 is about. So if your Bible's open, we're going to read this psalm in its entirety. Psalm 28. It's just nine verses long. We'll start in verse 1 and we'll go through the end of it. We're just told it's a psalm of David who suffered a lot. And David writes, Psalm 28, verse 1. To you I will cry, O Lord, O Yahweh, my rock. Do not be silent to me, lest if you're silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity, who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. Give them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them according to the work of their hands. Render to them what they deserve. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the operation of His hands. He shall destroy them and not build them up. Blessed be the Lord, because He has heard the voice of my supplications. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in Him and I am helped. Therefore my heart greatly rejoices And with my song, I will praise Him. The Lord is their strength. And He is the saving refuge of His anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Shepherd them also. And bear them up forever. We're going to look under or look at this psalm under three simple headings this morning. Here's the first one. Number one, I want to see David's desperation. His desperation. I don't know if you picked it up as I read, but the first two verses of this psalm, David's desperation is almost palpable. Look at verse 1 again where David writes, To you I will cry, O Lord my rock, do not be silent to me, lest if you're silent to me I become like those who go down to the pit. Do you notice the language there? David's not just mildly asking for God's help. What's the word that he uses? He says, to you I cry. Or your translation might say, to you I call out. There's a, there's a sense of urgency to this prayer. There's a sense of desperation to David's prayer. And David makes it clear in this prayer that God is the only one who can help him. There, there's no one else he can turn to. There's no one else who has the power to intervene. And so David says, to you, O Lord, that's God's name, to you, O Yahweh, my rock. That's a title that David loves using for God. He loves calling God. He does it so many times in the Psalms. He loves calling God his rock. Because what does a rock imply? It symbolizes strength, and it symbolizes protection, and it symbolizes security. Right? You, You can hit me, and if you hit me, I might fall down. But if you hit a rock you're going to fall down. So when we're in a position in life where everything around us feels like it is shifting sand, like there's no solid ground to stand on, David is saying in those moments, God is my rock. He's the solid ground I stand on. And He's our hiding place. He's where we run, who lifts us high above our enemies. That's the other way a rock was used. You would stand on a rock in battle, and as you stood on the rock, you were lifted above your enemies. So David is looking at God as the one who protects him. And that's why David is so desperate in this prayer. You get what's happening in the first two verses, right? 
David realizes God's the only one who can provide security. God's the only one who can provide answers. But it feels like to David like God's not hearing him. It feels to David like he's crying out to God and God is not answering him. That's why he says, Lord, hear me. Don't be silent. And it's, it's the idea of God, don't, don't turn a deaf ear to me. Lord, please don't ignore me. So he's pleading with God not to ignore his prayer. And I, I should just pause and say, David feels like God's ignoring him, like God doesn't hear him. But is that true? Now, of course it's not true. We're, we're promised in the Bible that God always hears the prayers of his people, right? I'll read you just a few verses. Listen to Psalm 34, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. God hears the cries of the righteous. And, and if you're tempted to go, okay, here's the cries of the righteous, but I'm not sure I'm righteous enough for God to hear me. If that's the question you're asking, let me answer that for you. I'll, I'll settle it once and for all. You're not righteous enough for God to hear you. Okay, So if you have questions about that, there's the answer. You're not. But we don't approach God on the basis of our righteousness. Listen to the way the writer of Hebrews says it. Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast, hold firm our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you get that? We come boldly, confidently approaching the throne of grace, confident that we can find help in our time of need. Why? Because we have a great high priest. Because Jesus Christ has fully atoned for our sins. Because Jesus Christ stands in the throne room of heaven where He represents everyone who trusts in Him. If your faith is in Jesus, you call out to God and there's the promise He hears you. So it feels at times like God doesn't, but the Bible assures us that He does. Well, that, That's exactly the angst that David is feeling. He's crying out to God. He knows that if God doesn't help him, he says he's going to be like those who get carried away to the pit. In other words, if God doesn't help David here, David is toast. So it feels like God's ignoring him. So what does David do? It's, it's simple. It's not a trick question. Feels like God's ignoring him when he prays. So here's what David does. You ready? He keeps praying. It feels like God's ignoring him in his prayer. So what David does is he keeps praying. I mean, what, what's he supposed to do? Walk away? He's just acknowledged God's the only one who can help him. So he doesn't get the answer he was hoping for from God. So what's he going to do? Give up? It's, it makes me think of, you know the story in John chapter 6 where huge crowds of people have been following Jesus and Jesus turns around and teaches some of the hardest things he has to say in the Gospel of John. I mean, he turns around and speaks in a way that most of the, not most, the entire crowd leaves. So thousands of people were there. He teaches and they all abandon Jesus. And Jesus, we're told, then looks at the 12 apostles and he says, are you going to walk away too? And do you remember what they said to him? Peter turns to Jesus and says, where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, there's no other place to turn. 
where else are we going to go? You're the only one who has what we need. So in other words, Peter's saying, Lord, we're not going anywhere. This isn't exactly how we thought. We didn't think the crowds were all going to leave, but we're not leaving because you're the only one who can meet our needs here. Well, that's where David is. David's not getting the answers that he wants, but David is going to keep praying. Isn't that one of the most frequent lessons the Bible makes about prayer? Is the importance of perseverance. In fact, the, the parables that Jesus gives us about prayer, the point that is made in more parables than any other is the importance of persevering when you pray. Do you, do you remember the parable Jesus gives about the guy who has a guest show up late at night? I mean, the way it worked in Jesus' day, it was a hospitality-driven culture. There, there's no, if you're traveling, there's no red roof in that leaves the light on for you. So you're depending on somebody in town to let you in. And so any connections you had, you would show up at that person's house. So if it was your friend's friend's third cousin's sister, and you're traveling and you showed up in their town, you would go to their house and you would knock on the door, and they would be expected to let you in. They would be expected to give you a place to stay and to give you food to eat. Well, the parable Jesus gives is someone has a guest like that show up late at night. And there's no food left in the house. They didn't have pantries filled with food in that day. They would usually make enough food in the morning to last that day. And when the food for that day was gone, it was just gone. And so a guest shows up. There's no food left in the house. So what's he supposed to do? Well, he goes to his neighbor's house. In the middle of the night, he starts knocking on his neighbor's door. Hey, man, I need help. Give me some food. Loan me some food. And the neighbor goes, man, go away. Don't you see what time it is? Go away. And he keeps knocking. Please get up. I need help. The neighbor goes, go away. You're going to wake my whole family up. Leave me alone. And he keeps knocking and he keeps knocking until finally the neighbor gets out of bed and he opens the door and he gives him the food that he needs. And Jesus' point is, if that reluctant neighbor is moved by perseverance, then don't you know that your heavenly father who already wants to give you good things, your heavenly father is not like that neighbor. If you're his child, he already wants to give you good things. Don't you know the heart of God is moved by that sort of persistence? Well, that's what David is doing here. David is hanging on in his prayer. And that's why Jesus, that parable, he finishes up by saying, so keep asking and keep seeking and keep knocking, right? But but why, why would I keep going to the Lord with these same requests over and over again? Does he forget? Is this my great reminder to Jesus? Or is, is that the way if I keep asking enough, that's how I grab hold of God's arm and twist it so he finally gives me what I want? No, the, the Bible doesn't tell us to persevere in prayer. Listen now, the Bible doesn't tell us to persevere in prayer because God needs it. The Bible tells us to persevere in prayer because we need it. One of the most important things about prayer is it is how we express neediness. Prayer is how we express dependence on God. And as we keep coming back to God, longing for God, burdened for God, acknowledging God is the only one who can help, God is pleased and we're helped and humbled by that sort of neediness before God. So David is laying out, once again, his burden before the Lord. And look at how he words it in verse 2. David says, 
Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you, when I lift up my holy hands toward your holy sanctuary. Lifting up hands in the Bible is it's sometimes associated with praise, right? So maybe we lift up our hands when we're praising God. You get examples of that. For instance, Psalm 134 verse 2 says, Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. So lifting hands is sometimes associated with praise. But most often, lifting hands in the Bible is actually associated with prayer. More than anything else, raising hands in the Bible, it, it goes with praise. It's appropriate. But more than it's associated with praise, it's associated with prayer. We raise our hands toward heaven as we pray to God. A good example is Lamentations. Listen to Lamentations chapter 2. Notice the neediness of this language. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands toward Him for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. This is a prayer of desperation and limitations. Jeremiah describes us as our hearts are being poured out like water, as our hands are being raised in neediness to God. You get that picture so often in the Bible. We're told in 1 Kings when Solomon led the nation of Israel in prayer where they're dedicating the grand temple that's finally been built. We're told that Solomon bent on his knees and he raised his hands toward heaven. And we're not commanded to do that. But that is presented in the Bible as an appropriate way to posture our bodies when we pray. Because what we're doing when we raise our, when, when David is saying he's raising his hands here, is, is we with our posture are, are symbolizing what's happening in our hearts. That in my heart, as I'm showing in my body, I'm reaching out to you. I'm coming to God like an open-handed beggar asking God to meet needs. That's what David is reflecting here. Not only his hands, you'll notice even the whole position of his body. David says in verse 2 that his body, as he raises his hands, are turned toward the holy sanctuary. The holy sanctuary is the most holy place in the temple, in the tabernacle. That was the place that most powerfully represented the presence of God with the nation of Israel. And what's interesting about the holy sanctuary is David had never actually been allowed to be in there. The most holy place of the tabernacle was off limits to anyone but the high priest. So David had never actually been allowed to walk into the holy place of the temple. But, you see what David's saying here? David couldn't physically go into the holy place, but David knew that his prayers could. He couldn't walk into the middle part of the temple, but he was fully confident that when he called out to his God, that his prayers entered the very presence of God. Hold on to that, Christian. I bodily can't walk into the throne room of God, but I have the promise in Scripture that I, when I approach God through faith in Jesus, my prayers reach the very ear of God. So David cries out with his hands raised in absolute desperation for God's help. That leads to the second part. Number two, I want to make a point about vindication. Vindication. Verse 3, David says, Do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. So, so David is confident that God does not hear. God ignores the wicked. 
And so you see his consternation. God ignores the wicked. It feels to David in the moment like God's ignoring him. So maybe God is including him in the wicked. Maybe he's just going to be swept away with the wicked. Because that's what he says will happen. David knows what's going to befall the wicked. He says in that verse that the wicked will be taken away. You see that phrase, taken away in your Bible? It's literally the idea of being dragged away in judgment. So maybe think of a criminal who's just been standing trial. And at the end of his trial, the judge drops the gavel and finds him to be guilty. And in spite of his curses and in spite of his protestations, the officers walk in and they grab him and they drag him away to serve his sentence. That's, that's the picture here. As, God, as David knows that what's going to happen to the wicked is they're going to be dragged away in judgment. They're going to be dragged away to answer before God. And you see how David, remember now, this, this psalm is written, he's suffering at the hands of other people, at wicked, the hands of wicked men. How does he describe the wicked in verse 3? Here's what he says about them. He says that the wicked speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. What does that mean? It means they're hypocrites. So they wear a smile on their faces while they plot evil schemes in their hearts. They seem to be one thing in public, but there's something entirely different behind closed doors. They wear a nice smile. They'll give you the impression that they would never take advantage of anyone. They'd never harm anyone but behind closed doors, they have evil schemes. That's how he describes these wicked men. They are hypocrites. And so what does he pray for in verse 4? David prays in verse 4. Give them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them according to the work of their hands. Render to them what they deserve. What's, what's David asking God to do there? He's asking God to judge them. These are people who disregard God's law. They dishonor God's name. They're a threat to God's people. And so David asked God to give them what they deserve. That, that's that language where he says, render to them. It's like David is saying, Lord, give them what they're owed. Lord, pay them what they're due. Lord, give them the wages that they've earned. And that whole picture there should make you think of a verse in Romans. That whole idea of give them the wages they're due. Think of Romans 6, right? For the wages of sin is death. What's a wage? It's a payment, a paycheck. Payment for service is rendered. That's what a, a, a wage is. So let's say that you work this week. Maybe say you work for CSX. But you go out to CSX and you work all week. You put in your 40 plus hours, however many hours you work. And it comes to payday. And what if your boss walked up to you handed you your paycheck and said, hey, this is a gift from CSX to you. Well, you would say, that's not a gift. That's my, that's my paycheck. That's what you owe me. I earned that. That's a wage. It's what you have earned. So what is it that we have earned with God? What does God owe us? Romans 6, the wages. Our paycheck as sinners is death. That's eternal death. And judgment. Make sure you get that. If your hope is that you're going to approach God on the basis that you'll eventually do enough things that God will owe you blessings, you are on a fool's errand. You will never do enough for God to owe you blessings. On your best day, you and I are sinners who sin against God 
in a hundred different ways. And the problem with our sin is not, not just this a violation of some law book somewhere. The problem with our sin is it alienates us from God. It turns God against us. So the last thing you and I want is for God to give us what we're owed. We don't approach God on the basis of what we're owed. We approach God on the basis entirely of His grace. That's the other half of Romans 6, right? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We don't want God to give us what we're owed. We want God to give us what we haven't earned. We want God to give us a free gift. We want the gift of righteousness. We want the gift of forgiveness from God. And that's what He freely gives us through faith alone. If you'll give up thinking you're ever going to do enough and you will put your trust in the work Jesus has done for you, God shows grace. But David is addressing men here. David is addressing men who are constantly dishonoring God and harming God's people. And so David asked God to give them what they're due. Look at what he says in verse 5. It says, because they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the operation of His hands, He shall destroy them and not build them up. So get what's happening. In verse 3, David told us that these wicked men are hypocrites. They smile, they would give the presentation that they're no threat at all. Meanwhile, they undermine everything. They're a threat to God's people. And now, what's the other description of these wicked men? They're ungrateful. So they do evil works with their hands, and at the same time, they disregard the work of God's hands. There's no recognition of what God has done. There's no appreciation for what God has done. They are, at the root, ungrateful, unappreciative to God for everything. Now just make sure, pause there, make sure that what David's doing here is not describing you. He's just given us two descriptors of those who will be taken away by God one day in judgment. And here are the two descriptors he's given. The first one, he said they're hypocrites. Make sure that's not you. Make sure you're not the kind of person who puts on a good face when you're in front of everybody. You smile, you give the impression you're an upstanding citizen. But when you're home behind closed doors, your heart is ruled by evil. David says that's a mark of the wicked. And the other mark is, David says the wicked are ungrateful. There's no acknowledgement, there's no appreciation, there's no gratitude shown to God. That's the other mark. So do you live with the constant recognition that every day you live, you are living in God's world? Every breath you breathe, you are breathing God's air. Everything you have, you have because of God's kindness toward you. The mark of those who don't know God, who are headed for judgment, is ingratitude. And again, that's why David asked for God to give them what they're owed at the end of verse 5. In fact, he describes at the end of verse 5, he describes his enemies like a rebellious city. So imagine in the ancient world, there was a city that refused to submit to the authority of the king. What would, what would the king do to that city? He would come in and he would completely tear it down. He would lay it to waste so that there wouldn't be a single stone standing on top of another. That's what David is praying for. He's saying, God, these people are dishonoring you, and they're a threat to your people, so Lord, bulldoze them to the ground in judgment. Now, I know this is the sort of prayer that Christians today aren't quite sure how to deal with. Maybe not even comfortable praying, 
I don't know if you keep up with our fighter verses, but our fighter verse this week was, we're called to bless those who persecute us. As Christians, we're not allowed to seek revenge. We're not allowed to harbor bitterness and to go for our payback on people. But at the same time, we're told not to do that because God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Well, that's what David is leaning into here. These wicked men are doing terrible things, and David is asking God to stop them by sending the wrecking ball of his judgment. And it's appropriate to pray that way sometimes. Ralph Davis said that sometimes our prayers need to have a little chest hair on them. That's true. There's a right time to pray this sort of prayer that God would protect His people and judge the enemies of His people. There's a prayer for vindication. And then thirdly, I want to see David's jubilation. Look at verse 6. David says, blessed, notice how the tone changes now. Blessed be the Lord, because He has heard the voice of my supplications. What's happening there? It's like David is suddenly confident. He spends the first half going, God, it feels like you don't hear me. Hear me. Don't turn away. And now he comes in verse 6 and says, Blessed be the Lord. He hears me. What happens? I don't know if David gets an answer to his prayer in the middle of this or if as David is praying, God just reassures his heart that he does hear. As he's praying, feeling like he's all alone, as David perseveres, God reassures his heart that he is not being ignored. And so what does David do? David begins to praise God. And that's the appropriate response, right? If you're a Christian, we pray all the time. We pray that God would meet needs. We pray that God would open doors. We pray that God would give direction. We pray that God would help. We pray, we pray a million things in our lives. So what should happen when we see God answer those prayers? Well, we should do the same thing David does. We should be grateful. Our our praise should match our pleas. Our gratitude on the back end should match our desperation on the front end. And so David in jubilation begins to thank God that he hears. That is the right response to God's help. The story's told of uh, one of the most well-known military leaders of the Revolutionary War, his name was Francis Marion. He was affectionately known as the Swamp Fox. He was courageous. He was cunning. Um, in fact, if you've seen the movie The Patriot, Mel Gibson's character in The Patriot is loosely based on Francis Marion. But the story's told that late one night, he was camped out in hiding with his men, that he got word that there was a group of 150 Continental soldiers who were being held as prisoners by the British several miles north of his position at a plantation. And the word was those 150 soldiers the next day were going to be transported to the coast where they were going to be put on British prison ships. And so Marion and his 70 men immediately got up. They rode all through the night to get to this plantation. They attacked the British just before daybreak. They won the battle. All 150 soldiers at the last minute were rescued. Well, how would you expect men to respond to that sort of thing? With profound gratitude. You would expect them to pledge that they're going to fight in in Francis's regiment for the rest of their lives, right? But that's not what they did. History tells us that, in fact, what they did instead is they decided that they had had enough of fighting. Half of the men who were rescued 
themselves marched to the shore and handed themselves over to the British ships. And the other, other half of the men uh, just deserted the army and went home. And you hear a story like that, and it immediately marks you, that is dishonorable. Someone who has been rescued, someone who has been helped like that should be grateful. It calls for gratitude and service and commitment and loyalty. But that's what David's expressing here. God has helped him. And so God, uh, David is expressing gratitude. Blessed be the Lord. He has heard the voice of my supplication. And he continues in verse 7. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in Him and I'm helped. Therefore my heart greatly rejoices and with my song I will praise Him. You see what's happening? It's like David can't stop praising God now. It's not just that God gives us strength. David says God is my strength. When I have no strength left, I rest on Him. And when arrows are flying, David said He is my shield. And because of that, David's heart now just explodes in praise. That's the second half of this psalm. And as David is praising God, what is he doing? What form does David's praise take? David says that he is singing to God. Man, I've made this point so many times in the psalms, but I just want to say it again. Just like birds fly and fish swim and dogs bark, Christians sing. You you see it over and over again in the Bible. A heart that is genuinely helped by God. A heart that is resting in the strength of God. A heart that has found solace in the help of God. Can't help but praise God in song. So Christian, Christian, sing. Sing to God. Sing loudly. Sing joyfully. If you claim to be a Christian but you never sing, You never find your heart just swept up with God's people singing praise to God. Something is askew in your heart. People who know the goodness of God can't help but sing to God. David raises his song to the Lord. And then verse 8, David writes, The Lord is their strength, and He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Do you see how at the end David's prayer is broadening? The first part of this prayer was very personal, but now it's turning corporate. Because David is making the point now, God's not just his strength. David says God is their strength. David's not just, uh, God's not just the strength to David. God is the strength to all of his people. God is the one who gives all of his people help. He is their strength, David says. And then David especially prays in verse 8 for God's anointed. What does that mean? Remember the way it would work is that a prophet would anoint a man who was going to serve as king. So there was a time when David was the anointed, the king in Israel. Then the sons of David who would sit on the throne after him while they reigned would be the anointed. And of course the ultimate promise in the Bible is that there's going to come a final anointed one. That's what Messiah means, or Christ in the New Testament means. It means the anointed one. God had promised He would send a final king who would conquer all the enemies and would rule over His people forever. And that's the one David's praying for here. So he prays for God's people, and he prays for the king. Because those two things are linked together. 
The position of the king is tied in to the welfare of the people. If you were here last Sunday night in 1 Kings, I made the point that what you so often see in the Bible in ancient battles is it it worked kind of like a game of chess. If you could beat the king, you won. If you could kill the king in battle, the nation was done for. But if the king was victorious, the nation was safe. So what happened to the king was joined to what happened to the people. And the Bible makes the point that that's still how it works for God's people. Our position is tied into our king. We have a king who conquered death. We have a king who took sin. We have a king who made atonement. We have a king who represents us in heaven. And so as long as our king's victorious, we're secure. And David concludes the psalm in verse 9 by saying, Save your people and bless your inheritance. Shepherd them also and bear them up forever. That's such a great verse. How precious are God's people to him? What does David call them there? He calls them God's inheritance. In Israel, your inheritance was the land that belonged to your family. God had designated it, and it was the land that belonged to your family that got passed from one generation to the next. The inheritance was the prized possession of every family. It could not be taken away. And David is making a point here about what God has chosen for his inheritance. What is God's prized possession. It's not a land. It's not a house. It's not a bank account. But God has made His prized possession His people. That's who God has made His inheritance. His people. So the God who owns a million galaxies has made us, those who trust in Christ, His inheritance. That's how God views His people. Let me make one more point and we'll close. God views His people as His inheritance. How does God treat His people? Well, David uses the word shepherd here. He shepherds us. He guards us. He leads us. He provides for us. He defends us. Even when it's through the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 23 says, Our shepherd walks with His people every step. And do you know what else He does as shepherd? Did you get that phrase in verse 9, the last phrase? As our shepherd, he bears us up. What does that mean? What does it mean to bear up? It means he carries us. That's what a shepherd does. He carries his sheep because sheep are prone to get injured, and sheep are prone to get sick, and sheep are prone to get wayward. So what does a shepherd do when he has perniciously wayward, sickly, injured sheep? He carries his sheep. How long will he carry his sheep? And that last word is great in verse 9. How long does our shepherd carry his sheep? Forever. His back never gets tired. His arms never get weary. Listen, Christian. Wherever you are this morning, you have a shepherd whose arms are strong enough to carry you through the trial. There are are seasons of life where the suffering feels so heavy, the grief feels so deep, the questions feel so strong that you wonder if you have the strength to take another step. And it's for times like that that we have verses like Psalm 28.9. We have a shepherd who promises he will carry his sheep. When there is no strength left, He bears us up. 
He can carry you through the trial. He will one day carry you through death. And he will carry you into eternity. So hold on to the hand of your great shepherd. Let's go to the Lord for a word of prayer.